Barbecue's our passion, and that's just what you'll get where the Kim Burns is a barbecuer. Tales from the pits. Howdy, welcome to another episode of Tales from the Pits. This is Brian. And Andrew. And today we are here at the Charleston Wine and Food event with Anthony DiBernardo, Swig and Swine Barbecue. Anthony, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. We, uh, we had the pleasure of going to one of your restaurants yesterday, had a really good meal there. Um, you've got four locations now, and uh, it, it seems like barbecue has become a, a dominating force in your life. Yeah. Uh, let, let's talk about how it got started. I, I understand that uh, you had a, a meat upbringing in some ways. Yeah, so I'm, I'm from the Philadelphia area originally. Uh, grew up working in kitchens, had my first kitchen job when I was 14. Uh, worked for Ron Jaworski, the old quarterback oh, from the wow. Eagles. Had a country club not too far from my house, and uh, I worked the catering kitchen there, the banquet facility. Started washing pots, and then eventually uh, moved my way into chopping and dicing and all that kind of stuff. And then moved to the hotline about a year later. So um, I've always been a chef. I've always been in the kitchen. That's all I've ever done. Uh, when I was, my, my father grew up in South Philadelphia. Uh, at one point in time, he was a butcher in his many trades when he was young uh, he was a butcher on 9th Street so I have that going for me and then uh, when it was time to go to college I wasn't really the best student in the world and I didn't want to waste anybody's money so I'm like let's go military so I joined the military and I actually cooked on submarines for four years that's how I got here to Charleston well, that's so. that's got to be uh, pretty difficult to do on a submarine I would imagine there's not a lot of uh, opportunity to be inventive uh, there is actually. Is he? Yeah. Yeah. When it's three months into a run and you're down to just uh, hot dogs and powdered milk and you know the bare essentials, <laughs> you, you got to get creative. creative. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So, but that was my uh, that was my you know that's how I got to Charleston, and uh, I'll tell you the um, that that experience alone shaped me as far as being ready to own my own business. I mean, it's the the four years and the the discipline and the you know the control you have and those you you learn in, in the military is a, a definite bonus you've been in charleston for a long time now yeah. and charleston is now recognized as one of the greatest food cities in the country um you were you were there in the earlier days before before it started getting the national reputation uh, kind of talk about what what some of the changes you've seen in charleston over all your years here in kitchens and working in sure food when, world. when i my first kitchen job outside of the military was at blossom cafe right down here on east bay street um, chef by the name of Donald Berrickman, who was one of the pioneers of Charleston cuisine as we know it. Uh, I learned uh, so much from him. I worked for him for uh, four years before leaving to go run the old hotel at Kiowa, out on Kiowa Island. Um, but the, the restaurant scene itself is just, you know, before it was a handful of restaurants. And now it's almost a thousand in the city. It feels like every corner you turn, there's a restaurant yeah. there, and it's and, and they're it's, good, you yeah. know. And the talent level that's here now is just, you know, something that that wasn't here before. But if you look around, what's funny, and and some other chefs that I came up with, now we laugh about, you know, resumes. Somebody will send me a resume, and they'll say they worked at so and so, and I know exactly who to call <laughs> to find out. Because even though Charleston has gotten so big, it's still a tight knit community, and the ones who came up in the restaurant industry here are the ones that are running the places now. So it's, it's you know, that's rewarding. Kind you of know, a generational see, thing almost. Yeah, like. to see everybody that put the legwork in back in the day, see, reap the benefits now because now they're actually in charge. Yeah. So. 
And it sounds like Houston had seen a food revolution over the last 10, 20 years as well. And it kind of seems like the similar thing that happened in Charleston and happened in Houston is before chefs would, would, would cut their teeth in one city and then go to a bigger city to, you know, to get more acclaim. And now they don't have to do that. They can stay here just like Houston. They can stay, you know, in their hometown and create their own name here. And that's, you know, that's kind of a cool thing because it keeps everything local and it yeah. keeps, you know, there's a sense of pride and tradition that goes with that. I imagine that that brings that local food effect in there as well, too, right? You're yeah, starting to I'm, see more Charleston. What, what would you say is a Charleston food type? Uh, what kind of category is it? Is a little of everything. In Houston, we have yeah. Asian and Vietnamese, and Asian is Vietnamese. <laughs> we have Vietnamese and Chinese and Spanish and Mexican and Texas and Cajun. We have all of that in in Houston. What what is what is the so scene Charleston? Is? I think that you know the the one thing that people kind of look over is the fact that a lot of our influence in Charleston comes from the islands, comes from the West Indies, and you know like one of the one of my favorite dishes that's an old school charleston dish it's in the original charleston receipts cookbook is uh country captain chicken curry almonds golden raisins i mean and it with rice i mean and that's to me that's like the quintessential charleston cuisine it's it's all those influences the african and the west indies you know so Taking it to barbecue, I mean, you, you, you worked on resorts, you worked in fine dining restaurants. How did barbecue become a passion for you and eventually a career for you? So uh, this will flash back to 19, or I'm sorry, 2001, uh, the year my son was born. I was still at Kiowa running the hotel. We had a 124-seat uh, restaurant there. Average price point was 40 to 60 bucks a plate. And it's a lot back then, too. It is a lot back then. You know, it's in a resort area. It was a four diamond resort. So, it, you know, it garnered the prices. And I come from a very, very humble upbringing and has have always been a blue collar guy. You know, I mean, no matter what I was cooking or where I was cooking, I always I knew where I came from. And I was at the hostess stand one day checking reservations for the night. And this family of four comes to the reservation desk and they're looking at the menu and I overhear the daughter, who was probably 12 or 13, say to the father, it's okay if we can't afford to eat here. So that really hit home for me because that was, it, it put things into perspective. And I went home and I questioned the fact, who am I to be cooking food and charging these prices for the food I cook? It's not me. That's not who I am. It's not how I was brought up. So that kind of turned the tide for me and I, I kind of walked away from the fine dining and and went back to the more approachable uh, value-driven food that I grew up with and um, at, while I was at the hotel every Monday we would do whole hog and oysters for the guests so that kind of ignited my passion for barbecue and so after the hotel I went I went to work for another local group who had nine or four restaurants at the time I opened an Italian concept for them uh, called Sete that was very value driven. Average plate was 14, 15 bucks. Um, and that was 2002. I worked with them, that group, until 2009. And then I went and opened up a, a restaurant on Folly Beach here called Rita's that was burgers and beers, you know, very approachable. Um, and then that restaurant got bought out in 2013. And I was faced with a decision either stay on board with them or finally take the chance and do my own thing. And uh, a guy that I had known for years and years, uh, Steve Kish, 
who's another pioneer of the Charleston dining scene. He opened uh, 82 Queen in 1982 as the chef and over the course of time has managed to buy it out and now he owns it outright. And uh, he reached out to me, he learned I was leaving uh, Rita's and wanted to know what my next move was. We had lunch and uh, me, him and his son hooked up and I showed him what I was thinking about Swig and Swine and the rest is history. So as you consider launching a restaurant and, and you mentioned value versus fine dining, what, what really separates that on the business side? So to me, do you want a, a restaurant that somebody comes to once a year? Or do you want to have a restaurant situated in a neighborhood where you can get the same people back two to three times a week? And that's really how I define that. And, and that's got to be, and it's got to be even more complex decision when you talk about being in a city that's that, that has such a tourist influx too, because you could probably prosper just off of tourist influx for a large portion of the year as well. So it really does have to be a passion decision too that plays yeah. into that. It could, but that's if you're downtown. So, like you know, you went to my downtown spot the other day. We just opened that, and just and one of the reasons we did open it was because my partner Steve has the lease on that property, and he had another operation in there. So if you look at our other three locations, we're nestled in neighborhoods and that was our approach, you know, to be the little, you know, the tourism in Charleston is great, but the locals in Charleston are even better. They're loyal. You know, if you, if you win them over, they are loyal as can be. So that was our, our main driving factor to where we decided to put locations. So as you start open Swig and Swine, how did you decide on what the menu was going to be focused on? Was it always going to be a kind of a mix of different barbecue styles or how did the menu evolve for you? So for my approach to the menu is let the meat speak for itself. So brisket, what's the best approach to cook a piece of brisket? You know, obviously salt, pepper, you know, indirect heat, a lot of wood, build that bark and so forth. Pork, light dry rub, you know, so to, to me, I approach it from a chef's perspective. I look at the protein that I'm cooking. What's the how can I cook this protein and represent it the best when it's done? And that's how the whole menu evolved there. And then, you know, you look at, you go to a lot of restaurants and, you know, the meats are spot on and then the sides are suffering or the sides are great and the meat is suffering. So our goal every day is to do both well. And that's the way we approach it. You know, all our sides are made from scratch and we offer 12 to 14 a day. Uh, meat, we offer eight proteins a day, um, along with full bar, full service. So that was our approach. We approached barbecue with a fine dining mentality. We want good customer service. We don't want you to go to the counter and seat yourself and clean up after yourself. We want to treat you with the respect you deserve from the minute you walk through the door. And it was great customer service when we were there yeah. as well. Um, it, when you were deciding to put brisket on the menu, what? You don't have to have brisket on the menu in this part of the country. Uh, so it's kind of why, and then and then, was it a learning experience to start cooking brisket? Oh Is yeah, this? I'm still learning. I'm still learning, and that's the funny thing. You know, my guys, my guys hate me. They really do because I change methods like I change pants. I mean, there's you know, I'll wake up one morning, I'll be like, let's try this, and I'll go into the restaurant, I'll turn their world upside down because I've just something they've been doing for six months. I just changed the whole process. And um, to me, that's what it's all about. You know, I'll, I'll eat a piece of pork and I'll, something will hit me and I'll be like, wait a minute, we could do this better, you know. Um, but with the brisket, I wanted to give a variety. I mean, you know, looking at the proteins, I wanted at least, we started with six proteins. 
and then we've added the um, we added the pork belly and we added the burnt ends pork belly was a quick add that was maybe a month into operation we added that and then the burnt ends came along we were doing them as a special you know I was just using my my points off of the briskets I was cooking one day a week we'd run it as a special and then it got popular so I managed to get in on a uh, contract through certified Angus beef on a cut house so now I get cases of just points and I take those points and we season them and we cook them and dice them and reseason them and put them back on the grill and so they became a steady protein for us but I wanted to offer variety and you, and you didn't have the benefit that a lot of the people that we talked to in Texas have of there isn't a, there isn't 50 people you can know and talk to around here about how to cook a brisket so it, w- it had to be a lot of trial and error for you were the were there any mentors for you, whether that's just looking at stuff online or local or? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, so going back to starting Swig and Swine, so here I am, no paycheck for eight months, don't have any money in the bank. I had to borrow money from my parents to get Swig and Swine started. Um, so a lot of pressure there, I, I couldn't travel. So a lot of my research was internet-based and just kind of looking and seeing and using my, my culinary knowledge to just put things together and uh, we had our first smoker built custom built and uh, indirect reverse flow and that was it but it was a, a, a whole lot of trial and error my my brisket today is lights out compared to my brisket from the first day and it's definitely a growing and, and learning experience um, you, you talked about a reverse flow was it a decision to go with reverse flow based on um, just research or what research and and economics so you know when you when you think about cookers and you think about the way the flow and the smoke and the the price of wood you know you can get a lot more flavor out of one piece of wood reverse flow because you're almost getting two passes with that smoke and you know you're able to maintain a little more heat it's not you know i I choked it down a little bit more than i should have to keep a little more heat in there so yeah it, it was an economic decision at first yeah, and we're never, I think I told you yesterday, we're never sure what we're going to get in terms of brisket when we leave Texas. And we've had some really good experiences, some not so good experiences. The brisket was cooked really well. We've had, you know, we've had really good brisket in a couple of places out in Charleston. And we were really, really impressed with the brisket. I mean, we're, we have brisket fatigue half the time because we eat so much of it. Yeah. But it was, it was really good. Everything we had on the plate, you could tell a lot of thought went into what goes on the plate. Um, and one of those things that we, we, first notice when we walk through the door is you don't keep any secrets. You've got your recipes for a lot of things literally on the wall, which yeah. is something we'd never seen before. Tell us what went into that decision of we're going to be as transparent as this is what our menu is. So, so you know, one of my biggest things is our, there is no secrets in barbecue. If you're willing to dedicate the time it takes to cook that product, I'll tell you anything you need to know. And, um, and that's it. I mean, it's, you know, there, there are no secrets. You, you know, you can go online right now and get any recipe you want. So why shouldn't I put it up on the wall for you to take home and, and play around with? And, you know, maybe when you get home, you're going to make it and it's not going to be as good as mine. You know, it's just something we do different or whatever. So you'll come back and you'll buy mine. It was, it was interesting as, as we were looking and, and going over the ingredients and the table next to us, um, the, the whole conversation we, we kind of overheard, it was really interesting. They didn't know what burn ins were. And your staff was, was, very nice about describing it, but you know this is a whole new experience for them and they went over and, and started reading the the different signs and i remember the, the i think it's a sweet sauce has oranges in it uh-huh. and, and so you know that, that that enhanced the experience for them but it also showed them 
that you know your sauce isn't just not only out of a can but it's not two or three ingredients some of these were you know six or seven ingredients yeah in they're there. pretty built and that's and that's you know that's the the chefy side comes out sometimes and you know how do i get how do i deliver acid to a barbecue sauce but at the same time deliver flavor that's just not straight vinegar you know citrus so do i want lemon in there no orange orange you know just kind of gives it a little bit of depth to the sauce and the fresh rosemary that we simmer in there also and I don't know if you noticed on that sign, but in order to give the smoke flavor to that sauce, we actually save all our onion skins. And we smoke our onion skins with the garlic. And we put that into the sauce and let that simmer into the sauce afterwards. And that's how I deliver the smoke flavor. No liquid smoke. It was really good sauce. Oh, we tried all of them. Yeah, uh, the yeah. other one we really liked was, was the mustard sauce as well. Yeah. Um, it, from, uh, let's kind of go back to the proteins a little bit and talk about sausage, one of our favorites. Um, you know, a lot of people, especially in this part of the country, don't make their own sausage. Um, what went into deciding what was going to go into your sausage and then the process of learning the, the sausage craft? So the, I've always, I, I learned the sausage craft when I was very young. That was one thing that, you know, growing up Italian in Philadelphia, you, you'd learn how to make sausage, especially when your father used to be a butcher. Um, so I've always fancied sausage. I've always enjoyed making sausage. and. Um, when we first opened Slick and Swine, we were doing two. We were doing a kielbasa, and we were doing an andouille. And I got my butt kicked. <laughs> and I couldn't keep up. So what did I do? I blended the two recipes. I was going to say, yeah, it's very Italian, we, yeah. almost like a broad or a, but yeah, kielbasa. Yeah, it's yeah. got that yeah. salt and crisp of a kielbasa, but then it's got a little bit of the heat on the finish of the andouille. And, um, you know, once we did it, 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 a couple tweaks here and there with some of the ingredients, and then we, we hit it, and it was spot on. And we, that's been become our house smoked sausage. So there was one, one spice in there that hit us that I know I've had before and I just couldn't put my, my touch to it. It was either maybe allspice or mace. There's a mace. mace. Okay. Mace and cloves. Yeah, yeah that we were, we were, he was racking his brain for about 30 minutes <laughs> yeah. and we were like, because we made so many different sausages yeah. and we're like, what is in that? I've got we know this spice we've used this at before. home yeah. in my cabinet it's real and subtle. I've tasted yeah. it. It's real yes. subtle, yeah. but you know, it leaves a lot of people thinking. Yeah. And it's a unique was, spice. Yeah. I mean, it, it, um, and it's an old school spice. Yeah. It's one that, that is not new. Um, it's been around for many, right. many well, years. If you look at all those old sausage recipes, mace is in a lot of them. And yeah. I mean, you weren't going to throw a whole lot of ingredients into sausage because it was force meat. It was, you know, it was using leftover Did you product. say horse meat? Force meat. <laughs> it's a French term. No, no, I know. <laughs> But Have yeah, it. it's it's you know it's a good recipe. We okay. like it. So so you got you got the first Swig and Swine open. Things were going well. Um, what was what was the next location? Swig, uh, Swig and Swine one will be five years old May twenty seventh. So uh, we've we've done a lot of growth real quick. Um, Swig and Swine one took off like a rocket. It really did. Um, and I'm extremely grateful for that. And you know the crew, you know it's you're nothing without your team. And I have some great people behind Swig and Swine. The, uh, the second location was Somerville. That was um, two years into it, we decided to open Somerville. And uh, we did that. And then a year ago, actually, we opened our Mount Pleasant location. So that actually, so we were doing all of our catering out of West Ashley too, which is extremely small. West Ashley used to be an, an okay tire store and we converted it to a barbecue shop. So when we built the West, the Mount Pleasant location, we built the kitchen big enough to handle catering as well. So we moved all the catering up there and then we opened downtown uh, mid-December. And, and the whole hog is done out of which location? Somerville. Somerville. 
So, so what made you decide to, to go into the whole hog business in Somerville? Well, we, we always wanted to go whole hog, um, but we just didn't have the room in West Ashley. So when we built Somerville, we built that smoke room big enough to handle enough pits to go whole hog. So we run four BQ pits on the ground up there. And is whole hog, um, I mean, I know we've interviewed plenty of folks in, in whole hog, but um, it, it's a very different cooking style than offset and indirect. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about the, the process. So the BQ grills, I don't know if you have any experience with them, but they're amazing. Uh, Melvin Whitman up in um, Elm City, North Carolina, uh, builds them. There's our buddy Spencer from Cowboy Cauldron right there. <laughs> we're in a yeah. glass box here. Yeah, we're in, a, we're, we're, we're in a greenhouse right now. Um, so uh, Melvin Whitman in Elm City, North Carolina builds BQ grills. They are, and he actually works with Sam Jones uh, to design this model, uh, the BQ. And it is a, uh, just a box, four by six. It's got a, uh, what they call a heat shield inside. So it's got a little uh, V-shaped heat shield inside. You can pile your coals in the ash pans. The heat hits that heat shield and just kind of wraps itself around the pit. It's got three exhaust ports on it. Um, it's got a manual flip arm, so you can lock that pig down in between two uh, grates, and one person can flip it without having to reach in the pit and get burned. So it's, I think those are the same ones that Sam Jones' yeah, yeah, new restaurant. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it's, it's actually, I, I joke around, I call it the Sam Jones model, but <laughs> it's what he uses up there. But uh, BQ uh, builds them in Elm City, North Carolina, and um, they're great. And so, you know, what, what I, I, once again, it took a lot of experimentation to get the pig that I wanted done. Um, all we do is salt the skin to start. We start it meat side down for the first 10 hours, 12 hours, then flip and we finish it on its back. So we finish with the with the, the belly facing up and we'll let it finish for about four to six hours, depending on the weight. We go, you know, one hour for every 10 pounds, rule of thumb. Um, once we get it to where we want it, then we let it rest on the pit for about two hours with no added heat and just let it simmer in its own juices. And then what we'll do for execution, we'll pull half a pig at a time. So we'll take the, leave the pig on the cooker, pull it towards us, take the ham, take the shoulder, pull it all into the belly, mix it all into the belly meat, take it out of there, transfer it to a pan, then that's where we'll season it. And then when we season it, all we use is salt and pepper. And then it goes to the plate like that. So we don't try to mask the flavor of it. You know, we don't add any vinegar or anything. So, do you serve it chopped or pulled when it's pulled? Okay, yeah, it's it's interesting to get those textural differences between the places that do chopped and pulled. I mean, we've had great whole hog done both ways, yeah. but I think my my personal preference is to have it pulled because I think you can taste the individual cuts a, a lot better than once it's all chopped up. Yes, and it retains a lot more of that fat too. Yes, which we're we're big fans of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so I go back to one other um, uh, dish that you have that I'd like to talk about, which is the Brunswick stew. Uh -huh. um, definitely not something we see in Texas. I don't. I know. I think Jim the, Buchanan may have done. There might one, be a but, couple places yeah. that do specials on it, but it's definitely not a Texas thing. That's right. for sure. Yeah. There's so so in this part of the country, there's a big debate whether it's Brunswick, Virginia, or Brunswick, Georgia, <laughs> and that's the big debate. And um, you know, each area does it a little differently, uh, but I like the way we do it. We. Um, you know, we use, it, it's a good way for us to utilize our, uh, our leftover whole hog and leftover pork butt, um, but also, you know, the fresh vegetables. We, we have a great farming industry here, so corn and tomatoes and butter beans, it's, it's prevalent here. And we, you know, 
It was a really good bite. I mean, there was a lot of flavor in it yeah, across. Yeah, it's and, bold. And you, there were big chunks of meat as yeah, well that were a lot right. of fun to, <laughs> to dig into. And it, pow, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's definitely a bold flavor. Um, we, get, we get some customers that come in and just order that over a bowl of rice, and that's their whole meal. So, now, Speaking of rice, I know you guys are also doing hash and rice, which yeah. we ordered. Um, that's a very traditional dish for South Carolina. Certain regions of South Carolina, as we understand, we, we did have a couple of the really traditional versions on our whole hog trip a few months back. And it's it's a different flavor. I mean, it's it's like a meat gravy, and it's kind of the best of both worlds for anyone that's looking for the flavor of pork, but not necessarily eating big mounds of pork. Was that was that all sprung from doing the whole hog, or how did you start wanting to add hash and rice to the menu? Yeah, well, because of its its rooted history here in South Carolina, it was one of those things that I thought needed to be on the menu from day one. And um, it's, once again, it's another one of those dishes that's evolved over the years. I, matter of fact, I just changed the recipe on that probably three weeks ago, you know? And it's, uh, you know, you just, as you get older, you just get wiser and you, you know, learn to cross-utilize things more and you do a little more research and you see this and it might, you know, so it's, and now that we're hitting the five-year point, um, if you follow our Instagram page too, you'll see like the Brunswick's do. We just revisited that recipe, you know? So a lot of these recipes were written five years ago, four days before we opened. As we opened the kitchen, we were in there putting all this stuff together and writing the recipes down as we were doing it. And that's how a lot of that stuff was born. So now that it's five years into it, it's time to revisit some of these things and see what we're doing and how can we do it better. And but you know. it's definitely, it shows the, you know, the commitment and the passion that you have for this because it'd be very easy with four successful locations to, I don't want to change a thing because right. Obviously, this is working for me, but but you're c continually trying to improve and and that's a double-edged sword too because you'll see the comments on the the Brunswick stew picture on the Instagram from last week. You know, I immediately got feedback. Don't change it too much. We <laughs> like it the way it is. Yeah. You know, and it's like okay, I I feel you. I'm not going to change it that much, <laughs> but it's you know there there has to be, you know, there always has to be evolution, you know. And it's not like I'm trying to keep up with the Joneses. It's just I know that my customer has been coming to me for five years. They need to see a change. They need to see improvement. Just like we do with the, you know, we repaint the interiors and we buy new furniture. Something has to be improved with the food also. And, and speaking of evolution, um, you know, we always hearken back to Texas, but um, we, we've been seeing this trend over many years now to go to a fattier and fattier product, more rich products. Um, what do you see in Charleston, especially in Charleston barbecue? Is that trend continuing or What's kind of next in Charleston barbecue? I don't know, to be honest with you. I mean, it's, I, I don't, I don't, I hope the barbecue doesn't grow too much more in Charleston. I mean, <laughs> I hope the competition doesn't grow too much more. I don't know how much room there is for more barbecue in Charleston. Um, Rodney knocks it out of the park. Lewis knocks it out of the park. Home team knocks it out of the park. Bessingers and Melvins, they're old school. They knock it out of the park. I mean, so you got, everything you need here in Charleston barbecue wise. So, um, you know, as far as product and as far as fat goes, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I think, I think we have it pretty well represented. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I think I'm the only one that does pork belly, uh, which is, I mean, that Cheshire pork belly that we use is lights out. I mean, we, we treat it, we take it salt, pepper on the smoke, six to eight hours done. I mean, just pure love in that. Um, and then my brisket is CAB Prime. You know, those guys are certified Angus beef. That's, that's the one good thing. That's the one thing I've learned, you know, as a chef, trust your purveyors, trust your farmers. You know, if it's making its way through the certified Angus beef inspections, 
it's got to be good. All I have to do is cook it right, and then your end result is lights out. Yeah. And that's hopefully you saw that in our brisket yesterday. Yeah, when when you start with a great product, you just kind of try to get out of the way and let the product speak for itself. Exactly. Yeah. And we should we should definitely let the customers or the customers the listeners know um, Somerville will be reopening hopefully in about a month there was a, a, yeah, a mid, fire at the restaurant mid April yep I have a legitimate barbecue place now I burned down <laughs> so <laughs> we'll be open mid April nice so everyone be on the lookout for that if you're a Charleston local and you've been missing the Somerville location it will be coming back soon um, get out to these locations as soon as you can um, let's talk a little bit about yes we have Charleston to. wine and food exactly. Okay, so Swig and Swine Barbecue, four locations, West Ashley, downtown Charleston, Mount Pleasant, and Somerville. Um, get out there. You guys are doing creative specials. I know you're doing pastrami. Um, are you doing that on Thursdays? Yeah, every Thursday. So Monday is meatloaf. We do a brisket meatloaf every Monday. Wednesday is wing Wednesday. We do 50 cent wings every Wednesday. And then Thursday is pastrami day. Nice. Yeah, so Thursday is the Texas pastrami, pastrami day, day, too. So, yeah, oh, that, there you that, go. That, that works. Know that. Yeah, yeah the, there's a few places that are really known in Texas for their pastrami, and they always serve it on Thursdays. Interesting. Yeah, so that, that, is, that is kind of funny how that worked out. Um, let, let's talk about You're very involved in this event. You know, sure. Obviously, we're here at the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. Um, we are in the podcast studio lounge presented by Lake Crusade. And, you know, this has been an amazing first day and a half that we've had at the festival. You're on the board of directors. Uh-huh. Um, what, how's this festival been for you and what kind of what is this week like for you this is you know this is this is an amazing week for me I look forward to this every year this is my marketing week I mean so right now I'm in every any given day over the course of this five days I have the opportunity to reach 40 plus thousand people for minimal expense so I take full advantage of it um, I do we participate in opening night um, I'll be participating in smoking in the boys' room tonight. I'm, I'm uh, backing up uh, Tiffany Faison from Boston. She's coming in. I'm bringing my rigs out for her. We're going to smoke some chicken for her. I'm also doing the dish for Natalie Morales tonight from the Today Show. Um, and then, as well, we're doing our own. I got some nice uh, chuck ribs from CAB, and we're putting some smoke on those right now at the shop. We'll have those out there tonight. Um, we're doing some flank steak for Natalie as well so i'll be you know assisting the, the the three areas tonight uh tomorrow i'll be right here around the corner at chilling and grilling uh i took some cab brisket we made a uh, uh beef cheddar jalapeno sausage we're gonna be doing that on a slider with some pickled red onions and some alabama white sauce tomorrow um and then sunday will be at the finale uh, we're doing actually I, my partner is um from new orleans and we'll be doing the pork belly and she's doing a coconut red bean. Martha Wiggins from New Orleans. She's doing, and, and once again, there's your, there's your island influence. Yep. Uh, she's doing a little coconut red bean dish with sweet potatoes, and it's gonna be, gonna be good. Um, so we're looking forward to that. But this festival is, it's great. I mean, you know, this, this, I think this festival brings in more revenue to this city than any other thing that we host, honestly. Um, we put tons of heads in beds. We bring in over 400 chefs from all over the country. Uh, the, the size plus. of this is is just massive. I mean, you really can't, even in pictures and descriptions, you really can't imagine no. how big this is. It's 112 events in five days. So if you think about all the, the private dinners that are going on at the restaurants where we bring in a chef from out of town and they pair up with a chef in their restaurant and sell dinner tickets, um, it's 112 events in five days. Right. So. If, if, if you're a big food enthusiast, there's going to be multiple events for you, whether you're a barbecue person or seafood is your thing or southern food i mean there's 
all sorts of different types of cuisines, you know, renowned chefs from around the country pairing with Charles, local Charleston chefs. Yeah. And it's, it's just an incredible experience. And we're, you know, we're so thankful that we've gotten the opportunity to, to be a small part of it. And, uh, we're looking forward to the next few days and you know, yeah. a lot of barbecue events coming up that we'll be, we'll be at. And so, uh, we're, uh, we're excited to see what this festival has to bring. It's been an incredible couple of days and it sounds like the next few are going to be just as great. Good. Absolutely. Check out Charleston wine and food for next year. You know, get your tickets early cause they do sell out, um, and visit Swig and Swine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Anthony, thank you for your time. I appreciate you guys having me on. And we will talk to you next time. All right. Thank you.